Alice? Yes, Ponders? How was your last viewing of Rogue One? Well, um, I cried again. Okay. Like I do pretty much every single time that I watch Rogue One. But given that I had a, a, a focus this time, it was easy to tune in and just focus on that part. But then once it was over, I was able to sit back and, and, and enjoy and then cry. The, yeah. <laughs> um, but uh, but it was it, it was uh, enlightening and interesting to watch it with such a narrow focus in mind. Yeah. Well, because the first time we were just kind of watching it, broadly giving some ideas. But this is the first time we are narrowing in on one specific thing to talk about. And so I was very pointed in the notes that I was taking as I was as I was watching it. So although full disclosure, I did not finish watching Rogue One. I have already <laughs> failed at the challenge. I So I watched all the way through. I think I still have like the last half hour. So they got onto the final planet and I fell asleep. Because I was oh. watching it late at night after a day of camp, so I I have I have yet to have fully watched it this month, but I will have finished watching it by the time this episode comes out. But I watched most of it, and I watched the opening sequence five times. So I, I've watched one whole Rogue One of Rogue One. I just haven't seen it start to finish since the last time we spoke. So okay, um, I I didn't watch the opening scene five times. I watched it twice, but I did watch the whole movie all the way through. Nice. So where where would you like to begin with the opening sequence of Rogue One? Well, I guess we should begin with the very, very beginning. I agree. Let's talk about the Lucasfilm logo in a galaxy Wait, far, far away. <laughs> what? I said the Lucasfilm logo. Oh, well, I guess we could I'm talk just, about the Lucasfilm I'm logo. Just, I'm just but kidding. I guess the part the iconic Star Wars opening a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. Those words contextualize the entire film, not within the Star Wars universe, but to you. This happened a long time ago from you in your present circumstance in a galaxy far, far away from you. Not in some alternate universe. It essentially starts with the once, once upon, upon a time, a time of space that makes it feel like this is something that has happened in your world. And so what's important is that the morals that occur in that world apply to our world as well. Yes. When we have these conversations about rebellion and war, those political messages one-to-one -one correspond with your reality because they are the same reality. It's just two different places. <laughs> right? Right. But then, but then, so now we have no title crawl. It's the first time in Star Wars canon that we're given that iconic blue lettering title screen without it immediately being followed by the Star Wars fanfare. Right, right. And a title crawl. What do you remember about the first time you watched this movie and how that made you feel? I, I have very strong feelings in the theater that I, I can immediately pull back, which is like, I have this thought when I go into a Star Wars film, because I always wonder, like, what's the opening scene going to be? Because the opening scene of A New Hope is maybe one of the best and most iconic opening scenes that I can think of, because you see this tiny ship fly across the screen, and you're like, oh, there's a spaceship, we're in space. And then the Imperial Star Destroyer comes and you see just the tip of it. And then you see it grow and grow and expand and expand. And you're like, oh my goodness, this tiny ship is being chased by this 
monstrosity of a thing that it has no chance against. And immediately from that moment, all of Star Wars has been set up for you. So when when we go into Rogue One and there's no title crawl and we jump into that opening sequence, it all jolted my way of watching a Star Wars film. Because I always think, okay, I'm going to see those iconic words, then I'm going to read the backstory, and then I'm going to focus on what the opening shot is. And that was all taken away from me in an instant. And it was great. <laughs> yeah, it's the very beginning, I think, of, of Star Wars starting to subvert your expectations, to use a phrase that has been thrown ar around a lot in Star Wars fandom lately. Um, this idea of, well, this is what you expected out of a Star Wars movie, but this isn't really i mean it's a star wars movie but this isn't episode one this isn't episode four this isn't this isn't an episode this is a story this is a star wars story and so you still get your long time ago in a galaxy far far away and you here we go and actually with with the no title crawl there's a phrase i want to like say and then come back to Okay. Which is the backstory for Rogue One needs to be felt, not read. Yes. The backstory for Rogue One cannot be read. It has to be felt. And then we can, like, I'm going to say that, and then we can come right back to that at the end when we get to that final shot. Yes. No, uh, yes. Oh, I I agree. And that's, I'm, I'm glad that you said that because now that's got gears in my brain turning on how to apply that to a lot of this opening scene. So, so much of it is, is, is emotional. And you get a lot of backstory in this opening scene without needing to read it. You don't need to sit there and read. Um, it is a it is a time of political turmoil, and Galen Erso and his wife Lyra and their daughter Jin are hiding on up the planet Lemu, and Lemu is of, of course in in all caps, right. like it says in all the title cards. <laughs> right, <laughs> uh, hiding on the planet of Lemu after Galen and Lyra have escaped from uh, the evil director Krennic, who seeks to have Galen build. Uh, a, a great super weapon that's even like a title crawl that leads us into the scene that we're about to watch but if it were a title crawl that leads us into where it then says rogue one and starts the film it would be even more condensed it would be Jin urso is a war criminal who is currently in jail her father galen urso was responsible for the plans at one point director krennic the person running the death star murdered her, her mom and then at that point you're like well there's so much going on here why why didn't we just watch this movie first you right know? and so you do yeah you watch yeah. that it's movie. like a short film it's really good and yeah so instead of instead of reading about galen and lyra you get to see them and feel them and and understand and see in their eyes the choices that they made and what and what the horrible things that have happened to them and so when you get to Jin at the end of the at the after the title card, you you understand Jin and you you understand where she's come from. Right. So you don't need to have read it to get her. You don't you don't you just know you just get it. And I think so much of that comes from 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 the the tension that this opening scene establishes um between galen and lyra between galen and Jin, between krennic and galen uh there's so many interpersonal relationships in this scene that play themselves out really like almost like a like a play yeah. and where you're dropped into the middle of a scene 
and you are able to because the the dialogue is so um is so condensed and it's so well written you're able to get so much out of so little but uh, yeah it's it's tense the whole the whole scene is so tense and that starts with that musical sting that very first little piece of music that you get that you put at the beginning of the of the episode <laughs> it's it's a little dissonant and it's kind of shocking it kind of comes out of out of total silence especially because there's no fanfare because there's no fanfare and where yeah. you're expecting a fanfare instead of this big beautiful opening john williams chord you're getting a, like this little sting and then like a mysterious like tonal atmospheric music over these beautiful establishing shots of planets that you don't know you don't know where we are yeah so actually i want to talk about the planets real quick because that's this so i have a couple of shots in this opening sequence that from a filmmaking show don't tell perspective are some of my favorite shots probably in all of star wars which is one we start the very first thing we see is a planet and it is a different planet it's not the planet where the story is going to take place. It has nothing to do with the rest of the story. And we move away from that planet. And that that is just like, just it, it's kind of for me, that planet represents the rest of the Star Wars story. And it's saying, I know that you know what happens in Star Wars. Because we always start with these establishing shots of planets and then we see ships flying towards them or ships flying in that direction. That's how every Star Wars film begins. But we're going to move away from that story. And it pans up. And that is the director saying, Star Wars, actually, this isn't the story that you know. We're going to go look at a different story on a different planet. And then as it pans up, you see these lines across the screen. When you first saw that scene, did you immediately think, oh, those are the rings of a planet? No, I thought they were light. I thought it was just jets of light. Right. I was so confused. I was like, what? is that and i can see the ship kind of going through it but i don't it's just like this abstract shape in space and then it's only when the shot reverses that we see those rings and we realize it's that the sun's light is casting a shadow right where the rings of the planet stop and that for me is this other really great moment where the director is saying perspective is key and the things that you see don't mean anything without the context surrounding them which is the whole like that's the whole nutshell of how he's going to tell the story of Jin and the story of Cassian and the story of Bodhi is these people you can look at them and they're gonna be confusing because they're confusing people until we put them in scenarios in which you can see them contrasted with the rest of their society when you see Jin and Cassian moving around a city that is controlled by the Empire and this and that, that's going to change the way you see them. When you see them attacking an Imperial base, that's going to change the way you see them. When you see them standing in front of giving a speech to the rebels, that's going to change the way that you see them. But when we have them in those moments of isolation, like the scenes that we talked about last time, in between where they're on the ships and just talking to each other, 
they're confusing. They're complex and they're in a, a period of, of crisis and change and they're, they have a, you know, altered state of mind. Bodhi's just been, you know, tortured and right, you right. get all of these and, and Jim's in, 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 in grief and shock and, or, you know, or, or in, in various parts they're all making decisions and changing their mind because they're they're like human being like flawed human beings and and what the thing that you think you know about Jin you know at the beginning is maybe not who she is by the end of the film right um and it yeah it's about perspective and they're given a different perspective and and they certain events change their minds and and perspectives of the world and and so we to the audience are 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 given that as well, a chance to reevaluate what we think about not just these characters, but Star Wars as a whole. Yeah. And all of that is communicated before we've seen a character on the screen. I love it so yeah. much. <laughs> it's And it, it's so beautiful. Here's something else I, I want to talk about these about these planets, specifically, of course, the, the planet uh, on which this action, the action of the opening scene takes place, which is Lemu. Here's something else Star Wars... Um, Star Wars movies don't ever start off with. Um, this is a, a backworld planet, Lemu. This is a, a middle of nowhere, sparsely populated planet where people go to hide. It's not a desert. That's true. It's not Tatooine. It's not Jakku. It's it's Lemu, and it's lush, and it's humid, and it's dirty, and it's but it's like mud. It's muddy, not dusty. It's so different these these characters are, are are we are given this perspective of these like characters in exile that aren't banished to the middle of a desert yeah which is it's it's not just different i think it's significant yes it's it's again it's it's significant in its difference like you expect a backworld planet mm -hmm. but you have but we've only really seen backworld planets with the harsh and terrible conditions of places like tatooine this is a like a beautiful place to be. Right. It's it's got the you know like black sand beaches and it's got tons of of like mountains and like this absolutely gorgeous planet. But our characters, you know, are are the Urso family. They are they're they're wet and dirty and and poor and live in a tiny poor little house and they're they're in hiding and they're on the run here comes the Imper imperials but it's just it's so different than than what we're used to seeing in a star wars movie but it's not it's fundamentally still the same we're still getting these big bad empire you know tie fighters and and death troopers coming in after the poor innocent little guy um tying it back like here's 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 this new perspective and these new planets, and and uh, no title card or no sorry no title crawl and no fanfare, but you know what's going on. You the the the, right. the viewer you know exactly what's going on. This guy in a pristine white cape is is coming across the field and you know making his extremely dramatic entrance, um, because he's after something that our characters have and he's going to take it from them you don't you don't even need the scary imperial music that to accompany them you don't you you've seen a star wars movie before you understand what's about to happen it's familiar but strange at the same time and i think that's really significant yeah 
I, I actually, I think there's something interesting that you're saying about the, the fact that it's not a desert planet. Um, cause if you think about, I, I keep talking about this with respect to the other star Wars films, cause I, I love all the films so much, but, uh, like when we open on Tatooine with Luke, what we are watching in the beginning of that film is a person coming up out of a hole in the ground to like stand on the horizon and emerge as the hero. And when you set the landscape to be desert and dust and dirt, there is opportunity within that for a hero to emerge and be the tallest thing on the landscape, right? The shot of the binary suns is Luke standing up and he is the tallest thing because there's nothing else. He's our hero. Right. And he's our hero. And this ties into what we were saying last time where those films are about a hero. These, this film is about family and the people around you. Exactly. The world, you said the name of the planet. What's it? Lamu. Lamu. Thank you. Uh, Cause I do not have the benefit of the extended universe surrounding this yet. <laughs> And I don't think they mention the title, the name of the planet in the film. I don't think they do either. I watched um, the opening scene five times and I didn't get it. <laughs> <laughs> but so Lemu is not the place where a hero emerges on the landscape. Um, and It's a place where people hide. It's a place where people There's hide. mountains and holes in the ground. And, and... It, It's literally the opposite of Tatooine where it's a person emerging from a hole. It's people going into holes. <laughs> it's exactly. trying to put their heads beneath the sand. Um, And so that moment where Galen is, in fact, emerging from the landscape and standing up on the hill, trying to be the hero for his family, does not go the way that it is planned because this landscape is literally not built for him to become a hero here. It's built for families and sustaining that sort of narrative and him trying to separate their family tears his family apart even further resulting in the death of Lyra and Jin having this struggle with her father for the rest of her life, right? Um, But I have something else about the set design and the costume design, if you'll allow me to to get into a little bit of, like, filmmaking ideas. Yes, please. Okay, so this is all a working theory, and I actually would really like it if anybody who has watched Rogue One and is listening to this would like to contribute to my working theory. I don't have all the answers, but I noticed something and I I want to understand it better, which is that in this opening shot, there are four colors for the landscape and for the people. On the, the surface of the planet, there is the white gray skies, there is the black loam sands around, and then the green of the farm. And then the fourth color is inside the house, which is the brown that is lit by the yellow lamps that they have, right? Same thing with the four characters who are in this scene. Krennic is all white, matching the skies that are above and encircling the entire world. Uh, the green the green color is the same color as Jin's jacket. So she represents the farm and this thing that Galen is trying to... This is where he wants to be. However, Galen is wearing all black. And he is the black line separating the white of the Empire from the green of Jin. And the mom is wearing browns and tans, matching the colors of the interior of the home. She's the one who gives Jin her backpack. And then when Jin is underneath in the hole and she's turning on that lamplight, 
it's coloring gin a yellow color and it's the same lamp light color that we get on the interior of the home so that light that she's struggling to turn on is literally her mother who has who she has just seen die oh my god and so the world around them is a direct reflection of the story that's going on and what's oh more is that Jin is hiding in the darkness she's hiding in the loamy dark cave which is the same color as her father and so what this is saying is her father has successfully hid her away when she goes into the cave the darkness surrounding her is her father and all she wants is this light to turn on which is her mother but the light barely works and the thing that provides that light for her or a light for her is saw Guerrero opening up the thing and so this is all going to get into a much larger conversation which we need to have which i had not thought about until this viewing which is the relationship between Jin and her mother is so it's so important and it, and it's very very undertext it is very subtext it is never talked about explicitly ever but there's a whole relationship that has been expressed in that opening scene strictly through color and lighting so oh my god that is i wish that the listeners could see the look that was crossing my face (laughs) as you were as you were saying that you've got a video on me so i'm sure you were you were laughing at me because i am i'm thunderstruck that is so brilliant i want to throw out one more thing to you and i want to see if if this if this matches your theory or if you can fit it to match your theory or if it's just like a weird detail that i noticed but every time i watch it i notice lyra as she's when she bends down to give Jin the kyber crystal necklace lyra has an underskirt on that uh, when she bends down you get a really good look at it and it's red she's wearing a like a like a really beautiful dark red underskirt yeah and it's one of the only pieces of color in the in in that like real like real color in this entire shot and that's why it catches my eye every single time she bends over she's got that beautiful red skirt on i wonder if that if if we're gonna if if we want to go like super literal and it's like 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 blood like her Mm -hmm. death or if it's something something more if since it's a little hidden it's kind of this underskirt is it this is it saying more about the character of Lyra, not what she does or represents to Jin, but about her herself, the character? She's got this hidden piece of her that is maybe more more interesting than we than we're than we're getting. We get just this itty bitty little glimpse of somebody that is a fully fleshed out woman. We get a little bit of Lyra's personality, is that she's kind of a firecracker, and 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 you get. A little bit of this in in the movie Orson Krennic looks her in the face and says oh Lyra troublesome as ever oh Lyra troublesome as ever and it shows this familiarity with her when it establishes a fami- familiarity between Krennic and the Ursos but also yeah she's trouble also that, she... that, that line Lyra back from the dead <laughs> from the dead it makes it sound like of course she's like i knew this the whole time but also like i knew she wasn't dead but also it's just like her to show up 
like from the dead. Like this is literally the thing I needed right now. <laughs> Don't want to go too detailed, but it is really interesting. It's like Krennic and Lyra never got on. And you get that a little bit. Oh, Lyra, troublesome as ever. He just knows that Lyra's giving him trouble. And to get Galen to come along, he's got to convince Lyra too. Um, but I think... He- I think he knows that he he won't. But I so I think that and I and this tangent comes from your absolutely brilliant color theory. But I think that little bit of color in in Lyra's outfit shows that, and I I think that fits right into to what you were saying. You 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 get just this little itty bitty glimpse of somebody who was really something, yeah. and could have really been something. And then there she goes. There's her life just just dead in the dirt trying to protect the the man she loves more than anything else in the world and it's it's difficult especially since star wars does not have a lot of female characters and it doesn't do a lot of mother-daughter relationships and like at all and um it, it feels like 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 so much potential like like the, here's another tragedy of the empire has taken away our opportunity to see a woman and her daughter and the love that they could have had and that this firecracker character that she is. So the red. Yeah, the red. Are you ready for me to incorporate this into the theory? Yeah. Because I I did I did watch more of the film. I didn't watch all of it. I did not watch the end of it. But there is another moment where we see these four two these four characters together. And it is in a flashback scene yes. as we are arriving on the oh. planet. Uh, where they have the kyber crystals. I'm so bad at uh, names. Jeddah. Jeddah. This is what you're here for. <laughs> so I can't do names of anything. As they're arriving on Jeddah, there's a flashback scene, and the color scheme is all imperial dark because it's when they're back in the imperial times and everything is happy. It's gray and, and silver and, and black. And silver and platinum. But the costumes are mostly the same colors. Krennic is wearing white. Galen is wearing black. Lyra is wearing brown. But Jin's in red. Jin is wearing a bright red dress. Oh my gosh. And Jin, being the object of each of their desires, is the thing that is slightly incorporated into the color of each one of their costumes. So the bright red of the like undergown for Lyra in that opening scene is jinn in a happier time when they could provide for their daughter in a happy life that she wishes she still had but it's it's her love of jinn that's underneath all of this like brown and tan the entire reason she's built this home and has this home for them is to give jinn what they had to give her a comfortable life oh my god likewise galen isn't wearing black he's wearing very 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 muddy green yeah which is literally the it it, like it looks black if you're not looking carefully but there's tints of green in it and his daughter is currently wearing green galen is always fighting for the jinn who is there with them right now and the jinn who is part of his family lyra is fighting for a jinn that she she wishes she could have but she doesn't currently have because she wishes she could do more for her that's adding to the color wow so that's really good that's so. super good. And we can keep this all in mind when we go to other scenes and keep keep the color. We'll keep track of this running theory. And yeah, I would love to hear if anybody's listening to this, if wants to chime in, if you find 
you know, other parts of the movie that that showcase this. When we get to that part of the movie, we can we can. Oh, oh, there's more. There's oh, more. Oh no! Yeah. I mean, you I mean, more for me. You're still. You're here. You're gonna break me. It's all about costuming and stuff like that. And at some point, we might just talk about costuming, but I think it's better if we talk about it kind of tangentially to all of the characters. Mm-hmm. Because I will tell you later on in the film, after somebody has decided to take up their father's mission. They mm-hmm. end up wearing an all-black costume. Yes, she does, uh, doesn't Which she? blends them in with the Empire. Oh, uh, my in God. In an entire set piece that is all silver slash white, being the only thing standing between the Empire and the green earth beneath them, which is the green of the ground, because that final set piece looks very similar to the initial set piece in terms of color, except for it's slightly modified to be beaches and more sandy right a little bit more of this like like twisted paradise right but there is a green area there is a white area and there is a black area just like and the black area space and the white area is the tower and we cut back and forth between all three of these things and battles are happening on every front within the empire within the place of of living and family and home and within the blackness which is the only thing holding them back from each other Jesus Christ! Yeah. See, and but we'll get we'll get to all that, that like, later. There's so much there's so much to talk about. Then it's all that. Stuff we, that we, I, we haven't talked about that stuff that I like. I I love I love this movie, and I've seen it so many times. And all the stuff you brought up, I keep going. Well, yeah, like I yeah, of course that's how it is. Of course it makes that much sense because of course this movie is just as if not more brilliant than I always thought that it was. And and oh, it's yeah. really just naming these details making me go well yeah yeah i noticed the the greens and i know what color everybody's wearing in every scene but to tie it together like this to lay it out on a line like this is is is, i didn't think i could love it more but apparently every single time we talk about it oh yeah i fall fall further and further in love i want to talk about orson krennic for a minute okay let's do that I want to talk about, specifically, I want to talk about the casting of Ben Mendelsohn as Orson mm-hmm. Krennic. Yeah. Um, because he is so good. He is so good. Because he does not look like a particularly menacing guy. Ben, ben Mendelsohn has a really nice smile, and he seems like a really cool dude. Uh, you know, an Australian... I've seen interviews with him. He seems really, really nice. And and even in this scene when he's talking to Galen and when he steps up and he says, when when he's when Galen says Lyra's dead, and he steps in, he's, he says, my condolences. Lonely, I imagine. Since Lyra died, yes. Oh. Oh, no. My condolences. There is a minute there where I believe him. Oh, it's so like, genuine. I yeah. really think he's like, you know what? I am sorry. You know, like, Lyra's probably not my favorite person, but, and and that's not important to my mission here, but he steps up and he says, my condolences. Yeah. And for a beat there, you you feel it. You're like, yeah, yeah. They're, they were friends, and that is expertly in, in, that is all delivery, and he he throws in these key pauses in his in his delivery, 
He's, oh. Oh. My condolences. It's this it's this breath that he yeah. takes like he's collecting himself. My condolences. And then another little pause that's like a moment of silence. Like, this is my minute where I respect you, Galen, and I respect the friendship that we had. Right. And then he just immediately turns around and says, search the house. Search the house. Back and this is this is where there's a whole nother reading of that, which is, my condolences, search the house. Which, honestly, is what any other Star Wars bad guy would say it as. Right. Like, there are other lines in other films where they, where a bad guy will, like, feign empathy and then continue on their mission right and there is a moment where krennic almost forgets what he has come there to do and then is like oh i remember yeah. now search go out. search the house right yes. it's so well placed it's so it's so well done because i believe it and and i could see and 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 when i watched it again i wondered if he was making it up if he was just saying it just to say it when i watched it again though i really paid attention to his face and i think that ben mendelson is playing it like a krennic who gets he's like i get it galen like i understand what just happened right. search the house. the house like like allowing himself that that moment of friendship right. with galen and I, I really think that was intentional. And I think it was a, a brilliant choice. Not and not, and not just by Ben Mendelsohn. That's going to to the director, Gareth yeah. Gareth Edwards, and the casting team put this 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 cast together of ridiculously talented people. Mm-hmm. Back to Krennic. He's got the death these death troopers that are his personal bodyguards. He's got this mm-hmm. pristine white cape. He's got his jaunty little cap. He's he's the very picture of imperial imperial bureaucracy and he is everything that galen is not yes this is another moment exact opposite he's shorter he's dressed all in white he's perfectly clean he's he has people around him he's galen is taller dirty standing alone on the horizon and has no one around him because he has sent off his backup this is this is another moment where there's this thing in film we talk about which is show don't tell yes And this is a perfect example of instead of wasting a bunch of dialogue on we worked together, we were friends, and you (laughs) left me, and now the project's falling behind, and you need to come back and help us build the Death Star. Like, we skip all of that opening part where we talk about their relationship because we already know that they are two halves of the same man. That this one has like everything going well for him and has an army behind him. And this man stands alone trying to defend the thing that he loves. And it helps us not just with the context of who their characters are, but how they view the world, which is that Galen only cares about the things that he loves and will stand alone to defend them. Whereas Krennic will use every ounce of power and manpower and gravitas bestowed upon him by his rank and his role in the imperial system to try and get what he wants and try to accomplish a goal there's a shot of galen with almost nothing behind him it's just galen and i think he's saying since lyra died yes i think that's the the minute and there's all there's you can kind of see the house behind him but it's just galen Mm -hmm. and his hair is soaking wet and it's sticking to his neck and he's sweating He's dirty and Mm -hmm. he looks so sad 
even though right after or like like in that same scene he gets called a, a rotten liar right yeah. you're a terrible liar uh, right. kind of says you're an inspired scientist but you're a terrible liar Galen. you're an inspired scientist but you're a terrible liar no, I have um, no idea. <laughs> he looks so so sad in that moment and i it's hard for me when i watch it to kind of take a full breath because that that's the whole scene puts this mood upon me while I watch it that makes me feel like I'm standing in that space with them and it's humid and it's hot and it's sticky I almost feel like I'm sweat like sweating while I'm watching it because it's so vivid it's so like visceral almost this atmosphere that's been created and it definitely helped watching this the other day in the middle of the heat uh, this heat wave (laughs) has been so bad and and i i do i when i when i breathe in while i watch him and and there is that it's really one particular shot of galen it's hard to it's almost hard to breathe because i feel like i'm breathing in that kind of swampy air and Mm -hmm. I don't know. It gives me such a physical, like visceral reaction when I watch it. Hmm. And that's interesting. And I don't. I mean, it's it's a it's a movie, and I'm sitting in my comfy couch watching oh, it. Yeah, but it's a sign of just like really incredible f- filmmaking. And I think the the whole every, everybody did such a, a wonderful job working on it that they were able to to bring that out in me, and I'm able to you know when people are watching it they're able to really feel like you're in that space not just emotionally but like physically understand what these characters are going through um i just yeah i just i I think about it all the time every time i watch it 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 looks miserable (laughs) no yeah it does look it does look really awful (laughs) yeah it looks awful and and there and awful things happen in it and so it's kind of just as bad as a desert planet um right yeah terrible things can happen on a beautiful lush gorgeous jungly swampy looking planet as well as a desert planet it's not it's not any different and simultaneously again with the whole contrast element of it is that looking at at uh krennic it doesn't look like he's having trouble breathing krennic Mm -hmm. looks like he's just breathing like when i look at the scenes of krennic it feels clear and maybe that's because the ocean is behind him and because there's this sense of air moving through that space but galen is really pinned down by the hill behind him that his home is built into and that really kind of it's like he's struggling to stand above the landscape just like we're talking about with this whole idea of luke standing on the tattooing landscape and being the hero he's struggling to stand above the landscape because he still cares about his family and because he wants to be there with them you know, Luke is actively trying to get away from his family. He doesn't want to help with the harvest. He <laughs> wants to go join the academy. He wants to he wants to get beyond this family unit. And Galen wants nothing more than to be with his family. And so he he that landscape that his family is literally built into and is color-wise built into is containing him and stifling us and keeping the air around him constricted. So that he cannot rise above that. There's one other thing. I guess this may be something that we talk about later. But it's something that I noticed on this viewing. And I maybe just want to put a pin in it. But it's the first mention of the Force in this film. Which is 
She puts the pendant on Jin. Lyra does. And she does not say, may the force be with you. She says, trust the force. Trust the force. You know where to go, don't you? Trust the force. And that is opening up the door for such a different view of the force than we have ever seen before in a Star Wars film. Because in the other Star Wars films, whose protagonists are primarily Jedi, the entire point of the Force is for it to be this thing which gives them power. The yes. Force is the thing which that builds they you up. Tap into that makes them the hero. That makes them the hero. Mm-hmm. Right. If this is not a story about heroes standing alone on the desert planet of Tatooine and looking up at two suns and finding that power of the Force within them and may the Force be with them so that they can do this, then there needs to be a different slogan and it needs to be something that has to be about family. And the mm-hmm. core at the heart of family is trust. Yes. And trust so goes when both she, ways. Right. Trust goes both ways. And so when she says, trust the Force, she's saying... The Force is your family, just like you trusted mom and dad, and you trust dad when he says, I'll, I'll do whatever I do to protect you. Say you understand. Jen, come here. Remember, whatever I do, I do it to protect you. Say you understand. I understand. It's that trusting the Force gives a family element to the Force. And then this is later echoed in other ways. So... I am one with the force and the force is with me is another twist on the force that doesn't make it the hero's source of power. It makes it the hero's ally. So I, I am, I love the way that they are very careful with their use of the, the force in this film. And we can talk about that more later. Because again, this is a star Wars movie, but it's not a star Wars movie put much emphasis you know italicize that it's it is star wars a hero's journey it's it's, star wars a family story yeah yeah it's it's rogue one a story about families (laughs) yeah i i can just imagine the deadpool 2 version of rogue one where it says it may not feel like it having just watched lyra been murdered but this is a family movie family movie (laughs) yeah oh boy So Jin. Jin Urso, my girl. The first, this is again. Okay, so I, we're going all the way back to the beginning just for a split second, which is the is opening three. Running? Yes. The opening three scenes. We have scene number one. Star Wars is happening over there. This is happening up here. Scene number two. The most important thing that you can know about this film is that it matters the perspective at which you are looking at things. And those things in relationship to the bigger things happening around them. And then the next shot of the film is a little girl who is running away from the Empire and towards her family. Yeah. And that is Jin in a nutshell. That is Jin for the rest of the film is running away from the Empire towards her family. Period. Yeah. And running away from any sort of establishment towards her family and always running towards her family. What I what I love so much is that Galen sends them both away. They both run a little ways out and then her mother, Lyra, makes the decision that she has to run back. And once the family has separated into three distinct parts, 
or well it's it's like the family is kind of like constricting out so those two move out there and then Lyra comes back into this midground between them to intercede and to try and stop what's happening Jin feels the urge to once again run towards her family like run away from the safety that is back there and run towards her family and that's the next shot that we get and she still hides and she's still smart she's not an idiot about running towards her family but she is always running towards family constantly doing that Mm -hmm. and, and always running away from the things on the outside because all she trusts is her family she doesn't even trust hiding in a bunker somewhere she trusts her family. She trusts her family until the moment until the moment where she feels like she's been left by them. Right. And she still trust she holds on to that kyber crystal and she comes back around to it, but you but you understand Jin to have felt abandoned by her family. She feels abandoned by Saw, she feels abandoned by Galen and Lyra. When they ask her, you know, do you know where your father is? She's like, I prefer to think that he's dead because the other option of that he left me and I was left alone is too hard for her to bear because that relationship with her parents is so important to her that it she would rather have lost them both entirely than to think that than to think that they didn't value the family unit as much as she did right so then when when Galen says in the hologram Everything I uh, reiterates again, like everything I did, I did for you. And it's tearing me apart that we can't be together as a family. And she realizes that he didn't leave her on purpose. And that's what shatters her. That's what finally breaks that mask that she's had on from the minute, the the second that she saw her mother fall. Her face is the same. She keeps that stoic mask on and she does not lift it. Until Galen says, "Moment, I try to bury myself into into my work because if I allow myself, if I allow my thoughts to wander for a moment, and I, I think it might be too much for me to bear, and I might, I might be crushed under the weight of it." And and she knows what that feels like because she's been crushed under the weight of it her entire life. This idea that she doesn't have a family is because, and and that's what causes that shift in her. What we were talking about last month about making that choice to run back towards her family. She runs back to eat. She runs to Edo and then she runs to finish her father's legacy um, because she had in she in the opening scene, she runs away from the empire and to her family. And then she spends the rest of her life running away from the empire, but towards nothing. And at the end, all she has left is to run towards the empire for her family. Right. And yeah, that's brilliant. And yeah, it's that that Jin Jin goes through so many changes so quickly, and you see the the minute that that changes for her is this is the is the 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 very moment that her mother hits the ground, and she's like, "That's it, I'm done. I gotta go. I gotta run." And it's this it's this idea that we get two scenes with Jin before that that define it, which is remember whatever I do, I do to protect you and trust in the force, the scene with the dad and the scene with the mom. And then as she runs back, she sees two things happen. When, when she hears her mom say trust in the force, she hears trust in family, trust in us as a unit. And she, she remembers whatever he's going to do, it's to protect me. 
Then she sees her mother die, so you cannot trust in that anymore because it is not a thing. So that principle in her life is gone. And her father start to be taken back towards the Empire. He's not protecting her. He's not doing anything to protect her actively because he's not the hero standing on the horizon. And so that principle of her life is gone. And so we see the two principles that her parents want to instill in her, and we see them both collapse before her eyes. And then as she runs back, she's running towards the cave, which is, in our reading with the color, a representation of her father's ability to protect her, but she doesn't see the darkness as protection. Because she wants this light, she turns on this light, she's trying to get it to work, and that light is the same lighting that lit up the world that represents her mother. And the mm-hmm. light, she's struggling to get the light on and ultimately turning the light on doesn't matter because Saw will come and open the door for her. But this this whole idea of her running towards nothing that you just suggested is precisely what what she thinks it, what you, you've said, is that as she's running towards that cave, she doesn't know what she's running towards anymore. She doesn't have a thing to run towards anymore. She can't even get this light to work that will remind her of her mother. All she has is this one crystal necklace around her neck that's going to remind her of that. And then when you see Saw, that's the beginning of our understanding of she has an, another thing to run with, but not necessarily a thing to run towards. She has another unit that is going to protect her, at least to get her up through the point of adulthood, but it is not going to be the thing which defines her, her life or her going forward because of the two core principles that her parents have tried to instill in her have both just been stripped from her by Krennic's actions. Yeah, and all she has left then is to become who saw her her rescuer her savior molds her into she becomes this child soldier she becomes a a, a this he says in their scene I, I did it to protect you um you know your dad was an imperial scientist he didn't he doesn't say because i loved you or because you were like a daughter to me although we get we get that impression <laughs> But so we've, I think, come to the end of I the opening so. scene. Yeah. And I, I want to return to this thing that I said at the beginning, this initial idea. This backstory needs to be felt, yes. not read. Um, because I think that unlike, and, and this, this whole discussion also has to, has to be steeped in what makes this feel like Star Wars, what makes this not feel like Star Wars. Where is this differentiating? Because this opening sequence is Gareth Edwards' opportunity to say how this is going to be Star Wars and how this is going to be different. And I think a focus on an introduction and a backstory that needs to be felt says loads to the fact that this is not, this is not a story about heroes rising and finding something within them. Because heroes rising and finding something within them rely, almost always in terms of story, rely upon mythology. They rely upon some sort of thing that is beyond their comprehension that they are striving towards. Arthur relies on this idea of kings and magic and knighthood and chivalry that he does not understand when he is a boy and that pulling the sword from the stone moves him closer towards doing. 
the the whole world of Luke or of Harry is all like steeped in this idea of a world that they do not totally understand. Jin's story is not steeped in a world that she doesn't understand. Jin's story is steeped in a world that she understands more than some of the adults in her in her world. Yeah, right? she understands and, it too and, well. Right, she understands it too well, and she grows up almost with, I, I want to say, like, this traumatic event early in her life defining everything moving forwards and shaping her entire worldview. And it's something that we cannot be told, and that if we were told, wouldn't help us know where Jin is starting from and going towards. It helps us to know, like, the backstory of the Clone War, or the backstory of the Rebellion and stuff like that, as we look into the story of Leia and Luke. As we we have this, like, here are the headlines from the, the galaxy, as, like, this is the news, this is the buzz that's in the air, this is what Luke is, is growing up in, this discussion of Empire, and this and that, and secret plans, and Bespin spies, and all that good stuff. Uh, that that is going to define where Luke starts from. And it's important for us to not understand it as well as Luke doesn't understand it. (laughs) But with Jin, we need to understand it as well, if not better than Jin understands it so that we can understand where Jin is trying to go to and where we want her to go to. And that's what pulls us forward through the film is us seeing her principles literally die in front of her and be stripped from her and watching her and pulling for her to return to those principles throughout the film. That's what I have to say about that. That's why I, I love this idea that it needs to be felt and not read. It's and perfect. why this like this short film works to introduce Rogue One better than any title crawl could have. Yeah. Yeah. The title crawl has its place and it's in Luke's story. It's in the Skywalker saga and it's not Jin. It's not her. It's because this is her story and we're going to tell it her way. And I think, yeah, I think they made like a really good choice to take away the title crawl and just just give us the story. Yeah, it was a it was a really good, really powerful choice. And I, I know we 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 had someone on Twitter reach out and ask us about music and talking about the Giancino score. Oh boy. And and we will at yes. some point talk extensively about the score. As I've said, I will have a piano, we'll be playing things, we'll be talking about things. But there is a moment in this opening that is so perfect, and I will double back to this, but it is the first two notes when you see the Rogue One logo. Dun, dun. And those are the first two notes. first two notes of of Star Wars. The Star Wars theme. It's... Yes, yes, it is. And, and and I was just with Buddy Duquesne. You know, Buddy yeah. Duquesne of, of uh, Those Happy Places. Um, I've never heard of it. Not with him. <laughs> I was just with him. Um, and he, I asked, I and I asked him, I said, hey, buddy, what do you think about this opening scene? And he said his, his very favorite part is those exact, those two those notes. Those two notes. You think that maybe you're getting a dum bum ba da da dum But you know you get bum 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 bum
Ja. It's different. It's 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 like more like an homage to or like a um, yes, yes. And we will touch upon all of this. And it's so good. It's and it's a it's a really good way to end that scene. It was a yep. This is still Star Wars, but it's just a little different. And you're here to find out find out how different and why. Right. And yeah. And and that book ended with the absence of the title crawl, but the presence of a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. So like nice, cute little bookends on the uh, on either end of like a really, really powerful opening scene. So I think that is going to wrap up our discussion of the introduction to Rogue One. Next month, we are going to talk about the uh, title, so Rogue One, to the end of the first sequence on Yavin 4. So that is going to end with the line, it's very high. And then at that point, <laughs> at that point, the rest of the film is not something that we are going to talk about in, in depth. However, just like last time, we will be relating the stuff that we talk about in that section to the rest of the film. So you're going to want to watch the entire thing, unlike I did last time, with <laughs> us so that we can we can have these more in-depth conversations. If you do have any comments on today's episode, any further ideas about the opening, we would love to hear them. Or if you have ideas about this next section that you'd like us to talk about in the next episode, you can reach out to us on Twitter at RogueFunPod. We do have a Twitter now. We finally got it back. It's back. <laughs> so reach out to us. We will bring up your feedback on the next episode and continue the discussion there after this episode gets published. So, Alice, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at AliceWhiteTHP. The THP stands for Those Happy Places, which is the other podcast that I do with my best friend, Buddy Duquesne. It is about theme parks, rides, and attractions, and analyzing them as literature. If that sounds good to you, you can check us out at thosehappyplaces.com. My name is TH Ponders. You can find me on Twitter at TH Ponders and most places at TH Ponders. I also make a podcast called Accession, which is an ekphrastic podcast about art and art museums. Uh, if that interests you, you can check my podcast out uh, at uh, accession.fm. Uh, and I think that's going to do it for this week. Alice, may the force be with you. May the force be with you. Boom, we did it. Ba 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 ba.